Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 35 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and on this episode, we are joined by an understated 50-year-old Irishman whose name may not mean a lot to you right now, but who made a 2015 film that virtually everyone who's seen it loves. His name? Lenny Abramson. And you'll have to forgive him for taking a little while to get to this point. He's a brilliant guy with a lot of interests and pursued a few of them before arriving at a career in film. For a while, he was into physics then philosophy. But once he committed, he found success in a major way. First in Ireland, where he began directing quirky and unusual films 12 years ago, including the one for which he was most famous until recently, 2014's Frank, and now internationally, starting with the immensely powerful 2015 drama Room. Over the course of our conversation, we look back at everything that led up to Room, and then how he won over that novel's author, and eventual screenwriter of the film's adaptation, Emma Donahue, to win the opportunity to direct its big-screen adaptation. How he arrived at the casting of Brie Larson, who's now the favorite to win the Best Actress Oscar, and Jacob Tremblay, who was a seven-year-old kid with limited experience but gave one of the great child performances of all time and wound up with a SAG Award nomination. And how he managed to tell a story that sounds horribly dark on the page in such an optimistic way on the screen. If you want proof of how effectively he pulled off the feat, look no further than the Oscar nominations. Room is nominated in four categories, including Best Picture and, yes, Best Director for Abramson, who beat out the likes of Ridley Scott, Todd Haynes, Quentin Tarantino, and Steven Spielberg to land this career-changing recognition. It's been a pleasure to get to know him over the course of this long season that began for Abramson and Room in Venice and then Telluride, and then moved to the Toronto International Film Festival, where Room won the coveted Audience Award, and I think you'll understand why after you listen to this conversation. Enjoy. Lenny, thank you so much for doing this, and uh, great to see you again. And, you know, I wanted to go back. I've had an opportunity to pick your brain about Room, but not much else. And so to begin with, just curious, you know, born and raised in Ireland, were movies a big part of your life growing up? Yeah. um, I suppose like most kids of my generation, going to the movies was a huge, big thing. And uh, I was, yeah, I was a very kind of... uh, I was quite a geeky kid. I like to read and watch stuff a lot. Mm-hmm. And I've actually got my little boy is exactly the same. I'm just <laughs> looking at him, recognizing myself. So yeah, movies were a big part of growing up. I think all of the all of the ones you would imagine, mm-hmm. you know, all of the Star Wars and yeah. and Indiana Jones and all that stuff. But also remember like catching things like Lost Horizon oh, yeah. on TV and and Journey to the Center of the Earth and yeah, they they were 
Yeah, they loomed pretty large for me. What did you think you would be as an adult when you were a kid? Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> I thought that I would be a scientist. I mean, when I was when I was, you know, a real small kid, I got I don't know what it was about um physics and all of the, you know, you watched like, you know, popular science mm-hmm. programs and it seemed incredibly mysterious and also to demand real intellectual brilliance right. and I came from a family where that was the thing that was most prized cleverness was the thing that was most prized and I think I was a kid who wanted to a very strong sense of, of uh, yeah I mean it's funny to think about it of wanting to stand out you know mm-hmm. and wherever that comes from and the first way I thought that might you know that that desire might be kind of uh, satisfied was was through science, and actually, in the end, I did start. You know, my my university life was as a as a physics maths person. This was a Trinity College in Dublin, right? Yeah. Was it because you were actually truly interested in it, or what you thought you were supposed to do? I think it was a bit of both. I mean, what happened was that as I sort of went into it and delved into it, and, and up to this point, I'd been also reading a lot of literature and watching movies, and actually watching, I suppose, watching more broadly you know watching the European canon of movies and the great American directors so not just what was coming to the Mm -hmm. cinema near me and I was reading always but I think what I really discovered after a year or so of doing maths physics was what I was really interested in was ideas and 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 those ideas were um most clearly uh kind of central to philosophy actually so that was the subject that i really studied at college i mean i got i got out of the physics stuff pretty fast and then i did an undergraduate degree in philosophy and ended up doing more more post-grad work now before you left trinity college you began to dabble in filmmaking yourself right how did that come about and who was the person that you most closely collaborated with well you know uh, the story my story is there's lots of changing lots of um, courses that lots of things that started and shifted and so it's right. quite you know the pattern is quite uh, messy except that I form really strong friendships with people and they're often based on like deep similarities of interest so Ed Guiney was a guy who I'd known since I was 15 years old he was went to the same parties I did in the same part of Dublin and you know, went out with my sister and, and, you know, all this sort of just like stuff that happens when you're a teenager. But Ed and I were both really passionate about cinema. So Ed, while I was, we were both undergrads, he said, look, I'm going to set up this society to make stuff because this was when video was beginning to be something that you could like buy and <laughs> use. And, and I, and he said, you know, do you want to do it? And I said, absolutely. So that's when we started making stuff together. We were about 19, 20. Wow. And uh, and I'm still working with him. It's it's amazing. You guys are both headed to the Oscars as yeah, nominees. it's quite a quite a journey. Quite a journey. So the next step in that journey, though, was that you go to Stanford University in America. Had you been to America before? Yeah, I'd been. Um, I think what no, I'll tell you what I did. I because I, I thought I was going. I was interested in applying. I thought I'd been messing with films, but I thought, oh, yeah, I want to see how that what would postgrad life be like, and right. also testing myself, I suppose, against you know really great other other students who are really good in their right. colleges and again that sort of strange intellectual competitive thing <laughs> that I seem to have and um, I looked at so I came to the States I did a tour I drove around Southwest I went to look at you know to Princeton I looked mm-hmm. at various other places and then I chose I applied to about four or five places and mm-hmm. I was lucky enough to get into a few of them for PhD for program. PhD in programs yeah. and, and Stanford was the one that I chose to go to yeah before you left for Stanford, you had made a short that I believe was pretty well received, right? This was Three Joes? Yeah. So this was shot in the house I was living in, the apartment I was living in. 
um, on black and white um, on 16 with a bunch of people. And it's interesting, the bunch of people that were shooting on it. So all of them, a lot of them, this is when the Irish film scene was so tiny. Right. I mean, you're talking about like two shorts made that year. You could year. fit most of them in your room. Yeah, <laughs> in fact, we did. I think a half of them were there. Like John Moore was the gaffer. Right. He's now, you know, he makes big uh, action movies right. and all sorts of stuff. Um, there are some superb cameramen who were involved. There are um, people who are now directing at a real level. So it's funny, yeah. We, and Dominic we did, West, right? Dominic well, West yeah. Was, was, yeah, we cast Dominic mm-hmm. West. He was also in my college. Amazing. And... Uh, yeah, so we made that, and then that's before I went. And, and while I was at Stanford, I remember I was sitting in this trailer. I was writing an essay on Kant. I was living in a trailer on the grounds of a house in the kind of outside of Palo Alto. And uh, the guys phoned from it was the Cork Film Festival. It won yeah. this? It won the International Short Prize, which was like for us then this huge thing. It wasn't just Ireland. It was like against other shorts from <laughs> All over. from the real world. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. And uh, and they sounded like they were having a lot of fun, and I felt like I wasn't. So that was probably the moment when I thought, you know, what I really want to do is film. So that was the next big change. That must have been a, a big decision to walk away from a scholarship to Stanford, yeah. having already left your previous trajectory yeah. of physics what did those around you your parents your friends what did they have to say about well, this? My, I have to say my parents have always, they, you know they've always been really supportive I mean they they're my my I remember telling my father when I was leaving science to do philosophy and I think he he was a you know he was a person who really thought that I he really valued the idea of me being a, a scientist you know and then but when I, start, when I started doing philosophy, then I, I did pretty well, and then I got this scholarship. So I think he thought, great, you know, and my mother too. Look, great, you know, like classic Jewish parents, <laughs> Irish Jewish parents, I bizarrely enough. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I have an Irish Jewish mother. Talk about, talk, you know, You're getting it's the a therapy, best of both you know, bonanza. Um, <laughs> right. But then I said, look, I'm going to give that up as well, even though, because I got this inkling about film. And I don't know, they didn't. They didn't freak out, and I mean, and it took a number of years at that point before I started doing anything. I mean, it was really, I had a bit of a slump after that. I think because now you're back in Dublin, yeah, and just there's and nothing's running going into on. a wall. Yeah, running into a wall, not getting anything made, feeling like I made the biggest mistake. Um, but somehow I'm pretty tenacious, and that's and Ed was starting to, in a much more like um, robust way than me. Ed was putting a company together. He was, you know. And he was like finding other directors who were less, uh, you know, morbidly self-critical than me <laughs> and were prepared to like put their money where their mouth was and right. make stuff where I was like hovering and hovering. Um, so Ed built a, a company then that I ended up really benefiting from mm-hmm. when I started to make movies. And another thing that really helped, I guess, was something to do with the Irish Film Board, right? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. You're looking now at, at, a, at a situation where... I know there's so much Irish talent out here at the mm-hmm. moment. There, there are loads of people. There are, you know, there's Brooklyn, there's Room, there's Michael Fassbender, there's Saoirse, there's uh, a great short in competition. Mm-hmm. Then you had John Carney's film at, at Sundance getting loads of attention. So right, it's right. pretty amazing from yeah. for a, from a country of four million people. Yeah, totally. Um, but that's the result of two decades of smart support for talent. Mm-hmm. You know, which is something that we've got in Europe in a way that I think is it's really tough for young American filmmakers. And so I was supported right from the first movie by the film board. That means that they kick in financing? Yeah. Or, yeah. They kick it. I mean, like the first movie I made, which was Adam and Paul, sure. which went to Telluride, which which was an amazing thing. Yes. Um, 
it was made with pretty much fully financed by the Irish Film Board. Just took a total flyer on myself and Mark O'Halloran, who's the writer, mm-hmm. and they the script is is a very unusual one. It's funny that movie's now um, that's been on the national syllabus, you know, for high school students In Ireland. on and off. That's yeah, great. that's great. So it ended up being this quite, you know significant thing but it was it started off as what sounded like a pretty crazy or at least not very promising idea but they took a flyer on it let's tell people this is sort of a black comedy about a pair of heroin addicts who are going around Dublin for looking for a fix and it's been called the best debut Irish feature ever by some people it really went over big how did that affect what came next I think we weren't prepared for it working you know we were so stunned by the fact that it it worked and that people wanted to know what the next one would be that it took us quite a while, <laughs> a while to actually to like work it out um, what was funny about it was because it is it's stylistically really unusual and that's probably the thing that I've most been drawn to which is taking topics and subjects that you think are going to lead to one kind of film and really turning those expectations upside down so it's really a Laurel and Hardy film mm-hmm. it's really a very gentle film about effectively two sort of children even though it's wrapped up in what is pretty gritty and dark, but it's not It's not a Ken Loach story, you know? <laughs> um, but the result of that was, it, yeah, it took us a little while to get going, and then we made Garage, which is which went to Cannes, and uh, again ended up as part of the sort of canon because, it, you know, and so I get letters from kids going, you know, kids who love Frank, for example, saying, I now forgive you for having to study Garage <laughs> for, you know... <laughs> Well, it didn't just, didn't just go to Cannes, but won two prizes yeah, there, did, which is yeah. a big deal. This one story of a lonely gas station attendant in rural Ireland. Why do you think that one resonated so well with people who've never been to rural Ireland? Well, it's really a kind of, it's a sort of celebration of this really kind of marginal guy. And I think what we do again is you think it's a piece of sort of social realism, and but it's not really. It's a, it's a, an examination of from me and from Mark I think of 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 the idea that even in a person like Josie who's this very limited guy there is a kind of tremendous depth and value and I think that's what resonates I also think people recognize in small communities all over the world you get these figures who sort of hover on the edges right. just about have a niche and you know and 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 Pat Short who we cast is this very famous Irish comedian but he plays this remarkably serious role. I mean, I love working with comedians. Mm-hmm. I think I think clowns are some of the best actors. Sure. People on the fringes of Irish society were also the focus of a TV miniseries that you did, Prosperity. And I think this one really impressed people because it sort of offered an opportunity to show in one project so many different things. When things are going so well with film, why step into the world of TV? It kind of started because one of the characters in Adam and Paul, this guy called Georgie, who was this disastrous father to a little kid um, separated from the mother and he has a very small role in in Adam and Paul but Mark always said you know what's great is that some of these small characters you can feel that there is an entire story there Mm -hmm. so that's spun out into these four kind of interconnected stories I think it was I tell you the real motivation for for it was that there was at that time we were heading into the boom right in Ireland Uh, and our Prime Minister had gone on record as saying, you know, kind of effectively you've never had it so good. <laughs> and that just wasn't the reality of life for a lot of people. So it just felt, and the, so the, the, the title is ironic. And uh, it was just nice to be able to, and you reach like television, and that's certainly true now, you can reach a massive audience. And that was, that was the most polemical thing that we did. And it just felt like that was the place to do it. Absolutely. Well, 
that was followed as we work our way towards the present here with a movie that was the most successful in Ireland of mm. the year, at least of Irish films, and that is what Richard did. Why was that sort of the next step for you? Well, I was at that stage I was working, okay, so I was working on Frank. I was thinking about Frank, which was the next one. Mm-hmm. And it was taking its time and, and Ed had read this book called Bad Day in Black Rock by an Irish writer, Kevin Power. Yeah. Which had been a Spencer Tracy movie. Right? Yeah, and this was a, so uh-huh. this was an, a riff on that, but in this case it was set in a suburb of mm-hmm. Dublin called Black Rock and it was about very wealthy kids. Mm-hmm. Um and Ed gave it to me, I read it, and I kind of felt like there was something in it that I was very interested in because I went, you know, I grew up in a pretty middle class part of the, of Dublin and I knew the kids who this book was about, who were the, like the, I suppose they're the equivalent of jocks over here, but from yeah, a kind right. of wealthy background. These were rugby playing boys who were good looking and, you know, were popular and were sort of alpha. And I knew a lot of those kids and actually a lot of them were, a lot of them had this particular sense of, um, a moral obligation to be decent so it's not like they were dickheads they were a lot some of them were but some <laughs> right, of them right, were sort right. of like the good the good solid guy right. who, who believes in doing the right thing and looking after the weaker members of the group mm-hmm. and and I always wondered what happened to those boys and, and also I became really interested in, in kids who were um, at the centre of their group and were loved by their group and by their parents and by their parents friends and how do those kids deal with the disappointment of failure I mean most of us growing up like with you know not being the the, the super athletic or whatever you deal with that rejection okay. you, what if every every girl you approach thinks you're great what if every game you play you're the hero of how do you deal with the fact that life is at some point going to throw you something awful right so um, Richard was one of the characters in this book which had a multiple it had multiple protagonists but we decided to concentrate on him and he lets himself down. He fails deeply, hugely morally at a certain point in the in the story. And it's it's an examination of how he does or doesn't come to terms with the fact that he's not the person he mm-hmm. thought he was. And it just was so interesting. I also wanted to work with again, like because people say, Okay, you're dealing with characters on the margins. I think what I'm really dealing with are characters in extremis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and 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 the first two films dealt, you know, there was a sort of, there was an element of, of social marginalization, but that wasn't the point. In, in, in what Richard did, it was a different kind of, of total, a uh, sort of psychological collapse right. that we were dealing with. So Frank finally did come together, and this is with Michael Fassbender and Donald Gleason. I hope I didn't did butcher it, right. it. Yeah. <laughs> who's now everywhere. I think everybody's yeah. going to be learning how to say his yeah. name. And I think you guys are even working we together We are we're working again. together again. But this was probably, I, I would guess, the largest audience internationally yeah. for a film of yours, right? Yeah. I mean, I'm not, there was a conscious, I think there was a conscious, like, I sort of looked up from my desk effectively after what Richard did and and thought, well, there is a way in which I think I can make films for a bigger audience which still keeps this this authored quality or you know and, and I, having made those three films which are very very Irish although mm-hmm. they did critically very well yeah. and they traveled to festivals kind of ultimately there's a desire for an audience as well and there are ideas which which allow that you know yeah. which you just need a bigger canvas for and Frank in a way goes back to my kind of love of vaudeville which was there in Adam and Paul and that idea of of a clown, of a central, <laughs> bizarre, puppet-like figure that just totally grabbed me. And also the challenge. I mean, it, 
you know, I, I loved the challenge of how do you make a, how do you create an empathetic, deeply connected sort of experience of a person in a mask? And in this case, sort yeah. of a centric musician. Yes. And, and was there a model for this guy or what? Yeah, there, there was a, so John Ronson, who was the initiator of all this, um, and American listeners would know of him. He's often on, you know, he does a lot of This American Life and he's, you, you'd know him from TV. And so John had been in a band with a guy called Frank Sidebottom, who, whose shtick was, the guy was a wonderful creative man called Chris Seavey, who um, it was his alter ego and he performed as him and did music and kids TV and all sorts of stuff. Musically totally different, right. North of England guy in this sort of musical tradition again. And uh, he, John and Peter Strawn, his co-writer, fantasized about what would it be like if you're going to make if Frank Sidebottom, this strange North of England kind of loser poet, was fantasizing himself into another form. You'd have it's like the rock star version of this guy. <laughs> so so our Frank was an American, right. and we I read it at a certain stage, and then I got very involved in the in the working with the boys mm-hmm. and. Yeah, and then and then amazingly enough, Michael Fassbender expressed interest in covering his famous head in a in a papier mâché mask. <laughs> and by this point, Michael Fassbender was already Michael Fassbender. Oh yeah, yeah, oh yeah. He was a big. I think he'd done Hunger, and he, you know, he'd he was he, on his way. He was on his way. Yeah. So that was that was yeah. It was a, it was an insane shoot, and we did all the music live. The 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 band are playing for real. The actors are playing. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a high degree of difficulty and a very yeah just to kind of it was Chris Seavey the guy who was behind the original he was just this freewheeling creative force and we wanted to give the movie that same sense of just the sheer pleasure of creating (laughs) stuff sure so when did you first come across the book room and what was it that appealed to you about it this was by an Irish author I believe yeah Irish Canadian so she'd moved to Canada she then had dual citizenship this is Emma Emma Donahue yeah and again, Ed. So again, we're looking up from the desks and going. I suppose just feeling that sense of of being open to projects would set other places. And I mean, Frank had a little bit of an American dimension, but it was sort of a lot of it we shot in Ireland. Right. And Ed had seen mention of this book and was on. It was a bestseller. It was on the New York Times bestseller list. And Obama had even been photographed. Yeah, by him, right. Which was actually the point at which I th- I said to Ed, "Well, we you know let's." I wonder what insert name of famous director is going to do with it. I thought that was the end of our chances. <laughs> right, right. But we were pretty dogged about it. I just loved, I loved the book. I, um, again, so the cha- the crafts person in me, the kind of like the challenge of working with a kid that young, the challenge of, of, of setting half a film in an 11 by 11 box, the challenge of a, of a movie that's in two halves with with the the you know in inverted commas exciting bit right, in right. the middle with the bit that would normally be at the end and right. all of that and I'm I don't I rail against the three act constraint that the idea that there's just one way of making a film any more than one way of telling a story to a person in a bar mm-hmm. you know and um I also I my kids were young and I was just I was really thinking a lot about parenting it's a profound phase in a person's life if if they're lucky enough to have kids and um and, and I felt that Emma had managed to take a situation, a setup, which would normally be the, the would normally result in a story all about suffering and and confinement, and actually turned it into a, a an allegory of 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 every every progression from childhood to adulthood, and turned it into a meditation on love and on 
on parenting and and and, and that to me was profoundly moving and I, and I also had this deep kind of gnawing thing which has to be there which is that I knew how to make it into a movie and and that I and the idea of anybody else doing it was just killed me and I knew <laughs> I knew our chances were slim I felt like you know she I knew she was fielding offers from from here in the states I knew that a lot of people were interested in the property and my, you know half my fear was that somebody would take it and make it and do it and ruin it I think my other fear was somebody would take it and make it do it really well because <laughs> that would, right. which would be more right. painful right. to me right it is Ryan here and I have a question for you what do you do when you win like are you a fist pumper a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The next step is something that sounds like it makes a lot of sense, but I don't think most people have the smarts or courage to do, which is you just sent her a letter, right? Yeah, I did. I sent her a really long letter, which was, I think it was, for me, it was important to do it because I thought, well, if I don't get to make this movie, at least I will have, I will have said my piece to her. Right. And, and I, I, yeah, I, I, I remember it very vividly. I spent a couple of days thinking very hard about it and I sent her what was, I suppose for me, just an analysis of her novel and an attempt to say, look, I understand its mechanics. I can take this engine apart. I know, I, I can see what you did and I, and I, and I honor you for it. It's right. brilliant. Um, but also there is a way of making that as a movie and it is less tricksy than I suspect other people may mm-hmm. suggest it needs to be. And so I just, you know, maybe having had that history in, in as a philosophy kind of major and, and and just being able to articulate ideas clearly to a person that I also knew grew up in Ireland it was really helpful because the kind of level of I always say to people the level of gush <laughs> that we Irish people can tolerate right. is quite low right. right so no buttering up the no person. buttering right, up right. The, we don't trust that right. you know <laughs> so I so I was I was able to be kind of straight I was right. also able to say look these things are going to be tricky and, and this is going to be a problem and I, I read the letter and right. you get right to the point it's very interesting style but it obviously worked how did you find out that it had clicked with her? Well, I heard we heard back from her her UK agent, her literary agent, that she thought it was a you know she she said which was a very lovely thing. She said it was the best thing she'd read about the novel. That's great. Which was great. Yeah. But she didn't. That was not followed by and here are the rights. <laughs> <laughs> it was right. followed by we will continue to right. talk. And uh, I think Emma felt at that point well she was assigning somebody to sell the rights, and in the end she got great people in UTA who were ended up being our partners and were really really helpful and she was slow and careful as she as she was right to be but then I think so what Richard did came out and was a bit of a thing at, at Toronto and then the news was out that Frank was in the in the pipeline and that had actors in it like in quotes you know well-known actors 
And then I think Emma's people said, like, that Irish guy that you think wrote a really good letter, maybe you should meet him because maybe he can now get the movie made. Right, right. That's when we came together. How early on did you realize she was going to be adapting the script herself or had she already done it even? She, so I, we knew early that she wanted to do it. And that was like, before I met her, that was a nerve wracking thing because I thought, well, you know, uh, that maybe that's going to be amazing, but maybe it's not. And if it's not, then I'm, I can't, you know, I will never be able to make it if right. I don't, if we don't see eye to eye. Right. Um, and then when I met her, she said, look, and I've actually read, written it already. Um, or I've written a version of it already. Um, can you work with it? And, and I read it and it was like a very straight adaptation. And in the two years that we worked together, it did change tremendously, mm-hmm. but it was the basis mm-hmm. of what we did. And, and it was her first, really her first screenplay and it was kind of remarkable. But what was best about it was that we sat there and we talked really openly about it and she was completely open to what I was saying. And I could also tell that she had a real nose for what makes something work on screen. And so I just, both of us, I think, felt like we're in the same territory tonally here. We both want it to be the same we both want the same thing for both want it to be a great film neither of us is precious I'm not saying it's all about the film she's not saying like she's not trying to grab onto mm-hmm. things in the novel and say that they're sacrosanct right and it was an amazingly satisfying collaboration and that's unusual just to clarify though so you had already been given the green light to direct by no. it, so you knew yeah. before you moved forward that you were going to be working with this script. If 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 if, 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 you got if it. I got it, right. and if I felt that it was something that I could work with, is there any rhyme or reason to why the films that you've made have tended to be from other people's scripts? Do you have a desire to work from your own script? I do. Point? I write, and yeah. and there are some projects that are that I'm going to do entirely on my own. I'm also co-writing something at the moment, which is really pleasurable with a great American writer. Um. But I have kind of written on everything that I've done. Mm-hmm. So I think Emma would say... You were a col- you, she, she, collaborator. She, that I was collaborative. I yeah. mean, so much of, for example, the work we did in the second half, restructuring it, changing the story, would have been stuff that we generated together and with with only good spirit on both sides. So I need to be involved from the beginning and I need to shape something for it to feel like I can, I can really... And I, do, I always say, I don't think directing starts... Like the, the the sort of naive idea of, of a director is that, and I've been in meetings where they said, okay, so now we're going to talk about the story, and then, you know, the director will will talk about the visual treatment as if as if your job was effectively decorative, you know, <laughs> that you just bring the pictures right. to this already existing structure. For me, the directing starts at the fundamental level of mm-hmm. of the conception, the dramaturgy, the the kind of the the narrative shape, because tone being the ultimate kind of directorial. Um, signature right. tone comes out of um, how story works. It doesn't just—it's not just like because you put the camera there right. or you—you know—you're—you're—you're you're, you're kind of—you uh, know—you don't imprint it at that late stage. It's—it has to be in in the in the DNA of the project. So people read the logline of this film and they think they're going to want to blow their brains out. Yep. You know, it sounds very dark, and yet you have said, and the movie-going experience bears out the fact that it's probably as optimistic a film as you've made or yeah. most people have made. I wonder, though, what is at the root of that? I think one of the points you had raised early on is that it is sort of essentially a retelling of Plato's cave yeah. story. And that if that's the case, then the parallel would be that Ma knows what's out there in Yearns for it, but 
Jack, as much as we may feel sorry for him, is actually a pretty happy camper. Right? He doesn't right. know what he's missing. Yeah, you, you're. I mean, paradoxically, you're mm-hmm. telling the story of a remarkably, given the circumstances, well-adjusted kid. Right. That space for him to have a childhood is maintained only through this extraordinarily courageous and intelligent and and kind of strategic effort of his mother. Mm-hmm. And and by creating that space and by also telling the story from his point of view, and that was the most interesting kind of challenge as a director because like in the novel it's a given you're talking as somebody always whether the narrator or one right. of the people in it but by doing that you kind of you participate in the optimism and at the same time you feel that kind of that deeply um kind of like pay, there's so much pathos in knowing what the real circumstances are and for me that mirrors the experience of parenthood full stop like any parent talks to their child in a voice which is a voice it's a voice that says it's okay mm-hmm. everything you say to a child now, even if you're explaining something scary all every all your body language all your tone your choice of how you say it is an attempt to kind of um protect the child so you're like this filter uh filtering out the really dangerous and scary and uncontrollable and adult right and right. making it kind of palatable to the child so the universality of this story is that it it in a very intense way, demonstrates what all parents are doing. Absolutely. One thing I wonder, and if you are able to psychoanalyze yourself about this, that basically most of your films, maybe all of your films, are essentially about people having to rewrite the experience of their life because of something sudden happening. Absolutely true. I mean, after the very first film, which you can actually understand that film that way as well, Mm -hmm. but the four that followed, all of them have this moment of complete change um, and I think I'm personally constantly torturing myself with the idea that I should radically transform the conditions of my life at the same time I know that I won't and I've kind of come to terms with that but you have many but times yeah and yeah. it's funny I don't see it it's <laughs> right. weird I see myself as and the point is you know wherever you are there you are so you're going to be right. you know you're always going to be in the middle of it so it's not going to seem that way But but actually yes I'm really, I'm intrigued and and sort of fascinated by the ways in which we kind of create a story about who we are that feels for, for often for very, very long periods of time absolutely rock solid. Like it's so, it's so strong that it's invisible. Right. And, and then something happens and that whole construct of, that identity construct just gets pummeled. So, so yeah, that I, I do appear to continually gravitate towards that. And if it's not there in the story, I somehow <laughs> will put it in. <laughs> Talk about how this small but terrific cast came together. The first on board, I believe, was Brie Larson, mm-hmm. who I think was as great as anybody I've seen in a long time, first in short-term 12. And yeah. there she was working with kids as well. So I wondered if that was a consideration in your decision to cast her. Well, it, yeah, short-term 12 was how I found out about Brie. It's how I knew what a brilliant performer she is and there is a kindness in her in that movie and it, it so happens that it's with children but actually it's just she's such an honourable character mm-hmm. in that mm-hmm. and she's also so present so unshowy as an actor like I'm not in both directing and acting I, I resist the stunt performing <laughs> I dislike it right. I dislike that kind of that idea of art as a kind of as a as a kind of stunt as a as an act of uh you know self kind of 
presentation. Mm-hmm. And we do tend to fetishize those performances particularly. And oh, wow. and Brie doesn't do that. She inhabits the character in the in the in the deepest tradition of, of great acting. And she I saw that in short term twelve and funny enough I didn't know about Brie before that. It was somebody in the office said you should you should watch that film short term twelve and like people are always telling you <laughs> that you that about casting right. and they're always saying oh you know who you should cast and you get used as a director just like you get used to when somebody says I oh, have I got a great story for you <laughs> right. the yeah. heart really sinks right, right? and it's the same thing with right. casting right um but this was a revelation to me and that's when I that's how I got a hold of Brie and met her and we just we again it's about relationships and we formed this very very quickly we just knew that we would be able to work together. And she auditioned, and she auditioned, and and actually, I'm a great believer in that process, not just for the director's sake, but for the actor's sake. And one of the things that you lose, I think, as you become a, a more famous actor, mm-hmm. is that you lose the capacity to, to test out whether you like working with that director. Right. You know, not just the other way around. Um, and then Jake was, you know, Jacob Tremblay, who plays Jack, is the single biggest stroke of luck. Yeah, because if that actor doesn't pan out, you have no movie. Um, I spent a long time looking at kids who were all interesting and beautiful the way kids are, but just they weren't actors. And you're looking and going, there's no film, there's no film. <laughs> and suddenly I'm looking at this boy and going, hmm, this kid has a certain kind of, he holds himself in that way that an actor does, that, that demands that you look, right? That's the first thing, and it's the unteachable thing. But he's still a little boy and seven at the time. Seven right? at the time, quite coached. So I'm looking at that and I'm thinking, no, maybe I need to find somebody who's a raw talent. It's if you, amazing, you can say that of a seven year old. But actually, then then I sent notes back and another tape came through and they were it was already already you could see it changing. And then I met him and. It was like, you could see a light going on in his head. I remember saying to him, you know what? Acting is kind of like almost being yourself. It's, and, and I helped him to sort of take things away. Mm-hmm. So you have this kid who's got a natural kind of gift for drama and scenes and all that stuff and, and dialogue. But underneath is this beautiful, really unaffected boy. And, and, and it was like the perfect blend. I've heard a very funny story, if you won't mind sharing about, he would not follow direction only in, I believe, one key instance where he just yeah. had his own moral compass I guess oh yeah he said he said uh, you know the first time because we shot more or less in sequence and the first right. time he had to really lose it with Brie and it's really important in this story that that you deal with a kid who gets angry and you you know because that's what kids do and they their emotions shift so quickly and he had to really lose it with her and he just you could feel him resisting all day I could thought I thought there's something up with Jake and I couldn't and then we got to that scene and he just he was kind of avoiding and not really going there. And eventually he whispered to me, I don't want to shout at her because shouting's rude and I like her. And I thought, oh God, you know, he's just a kid and he's, and he's shy. And right. I mean, and, and the, you know, our relationship was already really good. Right. But at that point I thought I mustn't mistake his capacity sometimes for the kind of maturity that can't be there. So we just got, we got the whole crew in to do this kind of, shouting competition <laughs> and actually lots of the scenes in which he really has to where there's that kind of intensity of emotion were, were games in the end and Brie was helpful with Brie this stuff Brie was so well. helpful yeah. I mean you know so some of the techniques that I use would be to run the scene for a while and then realize and then you hear that what happens with the kid is that they'll sort of get into a rote version of it They're, the pattern is too mm-hmm. too established so I would sort of throw 
curveballs at him, get him to jump to a different line, I'd say, okay, we're going to move around the scene now. Let's see how well you know it. And I'd go to the second line and the fifth <laughs> line and the fourth, right? And what would happen is, is that that would stop him from lapsing into right. the practiced version. But, but if you're shooting a two-shot and Bree's in that as well, she has to go to that moment in the sure. scene completely. And that was pretty remarkable. I mean, the way I think about working with Jake was that, like with an adult actor, you you talk about the, the whole picture, you talk about the, the big picture of, of, of what they're experiencing and, and that's the, the level at which you talk. With a child that young, you're really, you're collaborating with them on each brushstroke and you're hoping that those brushstrokes are accurate enough so that when you step back from the canvas, it feels seamless and it feels complete. And that, for me was the most intense process I've ever had with an actor not because Jake's not a great actor he is mm-hmm. but because he's a little boy uh, and there are things that he can't understand yeah. that it's not appropriate for him to right. understand that you shield him that from. you shield him yeah. from but he grew so much during the filming that by the time we were getting towards the end he was taking quite complex scenes and I was able to stand back and let him go and it was just amazing to watch him do it and if somebody asks as they often do when you're talking about a child performance how much of this was put together in the editing mm-hmm. room from a million takes what would your answer be? in parts of the movie yeah, yeah there were millions of takes mm-hmm. and they were so like carefully you know we would know and I would know like and I'd talk to Nathan the editor and we go okay yeah, I've got that there in that take. We think we can probably move to brief for that. We right. can come back for that, and you're, you're you're editing in your head and going, yeah, this will this will work. Mm-hmm. Then there are parts of the movie, particularly the ones we shot later, where it's like two or three takes, wow. and it's amazing. That's great. So it varied, and it depended on what the material was. Sometimes, you know, in a scene where you want him to be the wonder that he expresses when he sees the sky for the first time, you can't say to a child, okay, so. You're seeing the sky for the first time, on action. <laughs> right. You know, that's always going to be like a lot of detail, right, physical work right, right. and stuff. But in other places, he just, God, he, sometimes he blew me away. Like when, when old Nick comes in and feels his head when he thinks he's sick. Like, that's so hard to do what he did there. And I mean, it still takes a lot of wrangling because right. he'll lose concentration or whatever. But I can't make, I can't make his faces for him. I can't make the sounds for him. Right. A question I think a lot of people have is how logistically room itself worked. It appears to be a very cramped space, but obviously you had to get your shots. So where was the set and how yeah. did it work? So we shot in Toronto. On a, the, the room set is on a soundstage. Um, it was as small as it appears. In fact, it's smaller than it appears. And we wow. rebuilt it in LA to show people uh, you know, what it was like. And people were always shocked by how tiny it was. Uh, and we also made a rule, myself and Danny Cohen made a rule that we would never the lens would never be outside the dimensions of the room so we didn't cheat we didn't like take a wall out stand back and go well give us let's give ourselves a break Mm -hmm. in fact it was logistically really tough because you're just trying to you know i often had to hide in the bath or under the bed or to to be in the room but not to be in the shot so it's just you and the actors me and the actors and the d and the dp operator and everybody else mostly outside but sometimes it couldn't be that sometimes you had to have people in there and you're trying to you know stand there without getting the boom operator's elbow in your head and you know <laughs> right. it's, and, and also it's like you know it's four weeks of the shoot in a room with working with a child it was very intensive mm-hmm. however aesthetically weirdly the calculation we made was that this is a fascinating space it's a space people are really deeply interested in how it's possible to have a life in somewhere that small so it's compelling you're it's not a you're not shooting okay not, not every room is the same. If this was an 11 by 11 hotel room, 
in which somebody came, slept and left. I don't think you could spend 45 minutes in that. No. But this is two lives distilled. It's And it's not just the place they sleep. It's the schoolroom. It's the gym. It's the, you know, it's, it's, the, it's the kitchen. It's mm-hmm. the bedroom. It's the bathroom. And, it's, and, and there's the interior of the wardrobe. So ultimately, when you, you know, scale is... Uh, relative mm-hmm. in movies mm-hmm. you know if you shoot macro you can make an entire universe out of the top of a table so right. so I think you know it's always going to fill the same movie screen when I've spoken with Brie we talked about the fact that in her experience the scenes outside of room were actually harder for you as the filmmaker can you say the same thing or was it because of those logistical considerations actually harder in the room I think I agree with Brie I was so not expecting that I thought and as we approached the end of shooting in the room, I thought, oh, God, yeah. You know, everybody was dying to get out. And you got out, and actually, emotionally, the the work was much more complex. Trying to realistically show how a five-year-old boy might react to a world that he's never seen before is so hard. And for Brie, trying to, to calibrate her experience, her attempt to look like she's done a good job, her fears that her child will seem strange her own overwhelming sense of loss when she kind of realizes how many years she's lost and what that's meant. That's so hard. Whereas what you're looking at in room, despite the fact that it is, you know, a total nightmare to shoot in there, what you're looking at is an established pattern of life. You're looking at people who are doing what they always do. So the job of the observer there is to go, wow, this is extraordinary. But 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 actually it's 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 a very emotionally solid, very clear world. Right. You know who the enemy is. You know what the stakes are. You know what they need to do to leave. Well, in a weird way, it's like when you hear some people get out of jail and they want to go back. Yeah. It's, um... But we felt like, you know, we, I mean, not to, to, to kind of appropriate those sorts of experiences, but we did really sort of miss it when yeah. we left it. Do you personally know what happens to these characters in the future? No. I. I'm, it's a strange combo for me because... In order to make a film well, I have to, even though you as the filmmaker have imagined a lot of this, you then have to react to it as if it was real. So in the doing of it, they are, for me, as close to, as real as anybody in my life when I'm making it. But I also know that it's entirely a confection. So I think, I think what we are saying is that there is a chance for them to have a really fulfilling, healthy life. Um, And that's the point at which we leave them. But I, for me, it's meaningless to ask what actually happens. To right. Them. This movie I saw at your was it your world premiere or your or your North American premiere in Telluride? I've, Telluride was world premiere. World premiere. So that was a cool screening. You guys were yeah. all there. You then go on the next week and win the audience award at Toronto, and then it was off to the races. So I just wonder for you what the season has oh, yeah. been like. I mean, because this is something I don't think you can be prepared for. No, you cannot be prepared for it. I was told by loads of people, oh. You know, you you have no idea what's coming now. I hope you get a bit, of, get some sleep now while you right. can. Oh, remember to eat when it's there because you. Want, and I thought, oh come on, how, what a few days of PR here and there, staying in nice hotels, right. being treated really nicely by people. But it is relentless. It's six months' work, and from, there's probably you know, questions you don't ever want to hear again. Oh right? yeah, I, mean, <laughs> and I apologize. Are, cause I'm sure no, no, no. Them. You've actually, did, you know what? We've we've managed to skirt most of them. There, there are, you know, there are sort of. I think it's also you you're, you try yourself to sort of bring something new to the answers because, but something you do go a little bit crazy after a day of particularly quick short like oh, twenty or thirty short interviews. Yeah. That is Brutal. that is a, a machine to crush the will. <laughs> 
I can only imagine that that similar kind of experience is why we've ended up with some questionable presidential candidates here who are on the road doing this. Yeah, same thing I mean, for- yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and you know what? It's it's like on a smaller scale, and locally, luckily not with people's lives at stake. <laughs> it's got a similar pattern in in that there's a there's a kind of PR machine and. And, you know, people have their narratives around yes, particular exactly, films. And exactly. yeah, I can see it. I can see the other people out doing their thing. And I can see what they're, I can see how they're angling it. You they're know, both called campaigns for a reason, yeah. you know. So, uh, but the last question is this. So last month you are greeted one morning with a Best Director Oscar nomination, yeah. which is something that five times 88 people, I, I, you know, somebody else will have to do the math, but it's a very elite yeah. club. Was that something that you seriously imagined possible that morning? How has it affected things? And and what is next for you? I think a lot of people now are going to be curious to know. It wasn't what I was expecting that morning. I mean, I got up, I was a bit jet lagged because I'd been in the States and I was back in Ireland mm-hmm. and I sat down in my pajamas with my wife. The kids had gone to school. I was kind of nervous, but um, you know, really about Brie and hoping she would get a nomination. And then if the picture did, which was sort of everybody was sort of had at one point saying yes, and other people said no. So I was really keen to know. What, you know, it was a big deal. Honestly, when they were doing the director part, I was I, I opened up an email window. I was looking <laughs> on my laptop. I opened up an email window to do a couple right. of emails because I thought, and I was kind of interested to know who they would, right. would nominate. And it's a feeling that I cannot describe when they read out my name because it was like a sort of, I sort of thought I'd imagined it. And then <laughs> I noticed my wife jumping around the room and I thought, well, she obviously heard it as well. And it was a pretty amazing moment. It's And I think you, you know, as a filmmaker, you imagine all sorts of things just like anybody does in any walk of life. And I probably, in the way that a kid imagines, you know, throwing the winning touchdown in the Super Bowl, right. thought, well, what would it be like to, to get that kind of recognition? And And the answer is it's really satisfying because it's, well, apart from the fact it gets your movie to, to more audiences, it also, in in that case, is your peers, you know, other directors totally. seeing the work because it's the work in room as a director is subtle. It is it is those tiny brush strokes that disappear when you move back from the canvas, and it just looks like a a real picture. Mm-hmm. And and so it's quite easy. I think it's not it's not a particularly kind of um, a pyrotechnic or showy kind of direction. And and to have that recognized is really satisfying. Well, we almost lost you to physics and philosophy, but fortunately for all concerned, uh, that did not happen. And I really appreciate you going through all of this with us, and we will see you the rest of the way. Thanks so much, Thank John. Appreciate you. it. Appreciate it. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.